Hi, sis. Uh, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. I want to share a couple of thoughts with you as we continue to, to move through the Gospel of Mark. We are a little over halfway toward, uh, toward completing that study as we go kind of verse by verse and story by story. And uh, I would like to uh, submit to you the possibility, if, if there is a book of the Bible that, that you would like to study uh, when we get out of the Gospel of Mark, particularly on Wednesday nights, if there's a particular book you would like to look at, come talk to me about that. I'd be more than happy to, to consider that study with you. My sense is at this point what I'd like to do uh, is to just begin at the beginning. Let's go back to Genesis, because there's a lot there in in the book of Genesis, and begin to do some things from the Old Testament as well as the New. But I'd like to hear back from you to see what uh, what you might recommend. Well, let's look at the at the uh, the verses themselves in Mark chapter ten and verse seventeen. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up. And knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And there was some that would actually say that he didn't have possessions, but that the possessions had him. Uh, That he he saw them almost as an idol. Well, I want to talk about this for for just a few minutes. Let's go back and, and look at the first couple of verses. So Jesus is setting out on a journey, and one of the things that we continue to see in Mark that I'll remind you about is that the gospel is never static. It is always dynamic. It is always moving. That doesn't mean the church is always moving. (laughs) But God's not going to wait for us. God's intention is that the lost be saved. Jesus is always seeking and to to save the lost. And that mission continues. Uh, One of the, um, last night, um, I hope nobody from last night hears this, but last night I had an opportunity to entertain at a, a little church uh, in downtown Louisville, and they had the best of intentions. They really did, and they had a chili cook-off. It's 93 degrees, and they had a chili cook-off. <laughs> Some things, you know, are just not in the timing. Uh, and they had a lot of homeless people that, that came to eat chili, and they stayed in the air-conditioned area. They didn't come out to where all the activity was. They had um, some, some of the bounce things, you know, the big inflatable things for the children. 
They had an axe-throwing thing. <laughs> uh, and I, you know, I would, as pastor, I would question that. I would get the trustees and the deacons together and say, guys, do we really want to do this? <laughs> you know, but they did that, and it brought some people in. Um, and for the most part, it, it, the, the, it was on concrete, heat and all that, and they wanted me to come and to pretty much just open up their program. To, they called me the comedian. They didn't know my name. They just said the comedian is here, and he's going to open up. And they got mad. A couple of the, the pastors got mad because I wasn't, like, singing gospel and preaching. And I said, you, you asked me to, to be funny. Um, and I, when I preach, I'm not funny, usually. Uh, and, and so that was, but at the very beginning, I'm going to make this point. At the very beginning, they gathered everybody together that was on the program. And they, they had a rock gospel group. They had the magician, you know, that, that's going to come here. And they had me. And I was to open up to draw a crowd that wasn't threatening, you know, that I'm being funny and, and not being overly religious and all of that, not threatening with that, with whatever their program was going to be after me. So I was the opening. And so I'm doing all this stuff. But before all of that, they gathered everybody on the program together and they started declaring all of those things that Satan was doing to keep this from happening. Just one by one, they rattled off all of these obstacles. And it, it, it got to Rhonda and me. We looked at each other and we said, what are they focusing on? And so I, they said, does anybody want to pray? And I said, yeah, I do. And I said, guys, what, you're looking at the wrong thing. You know, you, you need to quit looking at things with, with physical sight and start praying for spiritual vision. You're not looking at what God's doing through you guys in the midst of all this stuff that, that these obstacles coming in your way. Instead of looking at the obstacles, start focusing on what God's doing in spite of the obstacles. And sometimes we got to realize that, yeah, we are up against what some would say are the very gates of hell. But are we going to focus on the gates of hell? Or are we going to focus on what is God is doing to tear those gates down? Back during um, uh, D-Day, there's a wonderful story about, you know, it was an atrocious thing, a horrible, horrible day for the most part. I mean, thousands and thousands of troops that were, were died, were killed, trying to land on the shore of Normandy. But there's, there's a story in Stephen Ambrose's book on D-Day uh, about one of the soldiers who said, yes, he, he described all the terrible things that were going on and the obstacle in the way, the Nazis that were firing at them and those that were, I mean, a horrible, horrible thing. But he said, what kept me going was that my focus was not on the beaches of Normandy. My focus was on Berlin. I wanted to get to Berlin. I wanted to get to Hitler. And he said, I, I really believe that for many of us, that's, that was our salvation. That our focus was not on the immediate obstacle, but to continue to persevere 
and to believe that, we, that God wanted us to move beyond the obstacles to get to his appointed destination. And that's what, what I shared with the guys last night. I said, you know what? We need to start focusing on where God wants us to be, not upon what the devil would put in our way. The gates of hell cannot prevail. We know that. We trust that. So I I think one of the things we need to understand is just in this one little verse, he was setting out on on his journey. What is our journey? Have we settled out on that? Are we moving forward? Have we determined that we're not going to first live in the past, the glory of the past, and we're not going to let anything in the present detour us or distract us, or even more, detain us for our appointed calling as God's people. He is on a journey, and he continues to be on that journey, and as his people, we are following him, not faltering with the obstacles. If I said that in a black church, they'd applaud. They would. They'd help you preach. Do you agree? Anybody? Help me. Help me. So he was setting out on a journey, and a man ran up and knelt before him because of the reputation that Jesus had. And he knew that this was an extraordinary presence. But then he asks him, twice he calls him, teacher, rabbi. He still doesn't get it doesn't get the authority that's standing right before him or the presence that is is actually recognizing the man in that moment of humility, that teachable moment. Listen, Jesus' presence is here. And wherever Jesus' presence is, is a teachable moment. And it may not be through anything I say, It may not be through anything we sing. And by the way, Paul, anybody who gets up to share, to lead, is always in that moment number one. You're not number three. And nobody in this this place is number three. Just a side point. Good teacher, what must... I do, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So his perspective is, I have to do something in order to earn eternal life. And you can't do that. It's not about us. It's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus does and has done and continues to do. It's all about Jesus what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's interesting that his focus is on his salvation for what happens after he dies, rather than his salvation on who you are before the afterlife. Jesus is always in the present. When the Bible says, for God so loved that he gave, it's, it's not just about his sacrifice. It's about his life in us, the Holy Spirit now. He continues to give. Does that make sense? He's continuing to give and we continue to receive. It's not just about where we go when we die. I heard one pastor say, 
You know, it's not about the sweet by and by, it's about the nasty now and now. You know, it gives us purpose, gives us meaning uh, to get up in the morning. So it's, it's not about what we do, it's about who we are in Christ. Our continual journey in Him. And the momentum of His Spirit that, that draws us into that kingdom activity with our very lives. Not about just believing in something, y'all. And that's, it's important to believe, yes, to believe unto salvation. But that salvation means that now we believe in that presence. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So now he's defining this man by saying, you know what? You think you're better than you really are. You can't do anything to achieve eternal life in your own goodness. It ain't going to happen. That's like trying to appease an angry God through doing things rather than to please him simply by being in relationship with him. So, example is this. Um, My son used to try to, to please me by doing things around the house. Now, it was rare, but he would. And there was one day that he went out and he tried to mow the lawn and he hit a rock, bent the blade. Now he's totally devastated because he made this huge mistake. Now he's not going to please his dad. And I had to sit him down one day. And I said, Andy, look, you don't have to, you don't have to do anything for me to love you. You are a part of me. You're my son. I appreciate that that you want to to do something to please me. That's fine. But don't do things to appease me for my love. What What was happening here with this man is, you tell me what I have to do in order to earn eternal life. And I've been good enough to do that. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not good enough. So you can't do anything to achieve eternal life. It is simply receiving a relationship with me. That's what pleases me. That's salvation. He said, you know the commandments, and he named them. You know all the commandments. And he said, well, teacher, I've done all these things from my youth. So now I deserve. So he's moving from what else do I need to do to appease God now to now I deserve eternal life because I've done all these things. You know people like that? Oh, I deserve God's blessing because I've done all these things in the church for years. And it's not about our doing. It's about participating, cooperating with what God is already doing that we find the joy. You know, honestly... I got to say this now. As I get older, I I think about my mortality. You know, I never thought about it as a kid, so I did some really ridiculous, risky things. I'm lucky I'm still alive in some of those things, you know. But as I get older, I kind of think about that. But I don't dwell on it because I don't want to miss anything now. I don't live in, in the fear of what's going to happen when I die, my fear is that I don't live before I die. I don't want to be so so obsessed with what could happen 
that I get fearful about not doing anything. That's, that's the part that, that I'm afraid of more than, than dying. So he says, teacher, I've done all this. And Jesus said, looking at him, looking at him, as he looks at us individually, he sees every one of us in this place. Nobody is anonymous. Everybody is counted for and accountable. So he's looking directly at him, and he loved him. That word for love is agape. Anybody know what that means in the Greek, the word agape? It's a Greek word. It means unconditional love. It's not conditioned by what he does or what he doesn't do. It's just there. It's the nature of God that flows from the very springs of the throne of heaven and embraces us. There's a love called phileo, brotherly love. That brotherly love usually is, is kind of tribal. It's uh, I love that brother who is a part of my family kind of thing. I, I designate that brother. Like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phileo is the word. Philios um, Adelphos, city of brotherly love. And there's another called Storge, which is pretty much about your own immediate family. I have to love people in my family, even though they, they may, I don't know, they, they, they may insult me or, or they may not, their behavior may not be all in keeping with, with family, but I have to love them because they're flesh and blood. The other is eros, which, which is lust, a sexual kind of thing, sexual love. But this word, Jesus loved him agape, unconditionally. So it's not about young, rich young ruler. It's not about what you own. It's not about your youth. It's not about what you do. It's just a given. He loved him and said to him, but you lack one thing. You lack something. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. What he's talking about here is you need to detach from those things that are perishable and attach yourself to those things that are imperishable. There are some that would actually say, you know what, what causes our suffering? We become so attached to things that will perish that we grieve when we lose them. And that causes suffering. We are attached to the things of this world rather than to detach from them. I had a professor that told me once, Brian, here's, here's how you need to live your life. You need to live your life in such a way that if God were to tell you tomorrow to pick up and go, you can do that without, without having to worry about storing your stuff because that's going to drag you down like an anchor that our lives are meant to be in motion. Our lives are meant to be purposeful. But disheartened by that, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I want to give you three, yeah, three quick commentaries about this. First of all, when he said, sell all and give to the poor. 
And part of it is because he needed to understand the poor. This man was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. All three things that we aspire for in our own, in our own country, in our own culture. Those three things. In order for us to understand, we often have to walk in the shoes of those that we don't understand. And so what he was saying was, sell everything, give it to the poor. What he was saying was, you need to walk in the shoes of the poor to understand their need. We project sometimes the needs of other people without understanding, and we're sympathetic we're very sympathetic with people that we don't understand when, when we think, oh, that poor person has, has all of these needs. But until we actually experience that with them, we can't look at that empathetically. You're hurt in my heart. Jesus said, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So what he was saying was, it's not that Jesus is telling all of us, sell everything that you have and give to the poor. That's not the point. The point that he's saying, one of the points is, if you are poor, if you sell everything and you become poor, then you will understand empathetically why Jesus wants you to give all your stuff to the poor. I was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I am empathetic with those who are lost. I went through a, a, a teenage, my teenage years that was fairly lonely. I was a loner. I was not an extrovert, and I'm still not an extrovert. The hardest thing for me to do on Sunday morning is to get up and say, good morning, everybody. And what I'm doing right now, I only do because of the grace of God. But as a kid, I mean, and, and when, you, when you see the show, you'll think, that guy's not, a, not an extrovert. I can do that. I can become a character. I can do monologues. I can say things in monologues and dramas that I wouldn't necessarily say openly to y'all. I can do those things. That's, that's part of a gift God's given me. But, but interactions, it exhausts me. For me to, to be involved with a, with a big group, by the end of that, I'm exhausted because I'm putting so much energy into making sure you know, that, that I'm cultivating those relationships and doing things well and all of that. My wife's just the opposite. She's an extrovert. She gets in, in, uh, invigorated by that kind of interaction. I have to pull her away sometimes, you know. It's time to go. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. We've got to go. That's why it works for us. But there, during that time, I understood as a teenager what those who are, might be called the wallflowers, those who don't fit in, or those who, who um, are just unique in those settings, I empathize with them. I'm drawn to kids like that as I teach in, class, in the class. Not that I exclude anybody. I don't do that. But those that typically kind of hang back, or when they're in the cafeteria, they sit by themselves. They're not the elite kids. They're not the popular kids so much, but they're valuable. Highly prized by God. So a few years ago at, at Christian Academy, we had uh, <laughs> the athletes sat over here. The, 
the musicians sat over here. There were exclusive tables in the cafeteria. So that day, I went in the cafeteria, and I established a table that was simply a table for people who didn't have a table. And then I got criticized because you established another table for kids who didn't have a table, another category. So, okay, what are you going to do? <laughs> so I just opened it up to my classroom. I said, anybody who wants to come eat in my classroom, come on in my classroom. And so it wasn't so pronounced that that's what happened. And we had kids across the board that would come in. But what the point is that there are times when we have to put ourselves in situations where we see need, where we can thoroughly understand the need to actually experience it. Another point, and I, and I promise I'll move quickly, another point is that it's really not about eternal life. It's about now. It's not about where you go when you die. That's icing on the cake. But our salvation is understanding when Jesus taught, he taught about the emerging kingdoms in conflict. Are you a citizen of the empire of the flesh, which we see in the rich young ruler, trying to buy his way into heaven or deserve to go to heaven? Are you a member of that kingdom or that empire, or are you a kingdom activist? We've got kingdom conflict going on. How do I know that? Because Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And there are messages in the, that we have to deal with every day in this culture. You have heard it said, but you better filter that through what Jesus said. You have heard it said to love your friends and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. It's a different mindset. It's a different lifestyle. Our salvation raises us to be reflections of his light. So are you living that out, rich young ruler? Or, I mean, you're wanting eternal life, but you're, you're activating your membership in the empire. You've got to become a citizen of the kingdom of God. And this is, this is a, the final thing. You know what? God never requires us to give up everything. But he does require us to surrender everything. It's not yours anyway. It's going to perish. What is important is not our things, not our stuff anyway. And many of the things that the, the empire would tell us is of ultimate importance to our lives. By the time we, we reach certain, a certain age and we begin to look back, we begin to see what's important. The floods. How many times when you hear someone who's been flooded out, everything's gone. They'll say everything's gone, or they'll try to save their, their photo albums. They're, everything's gone, but nobody died in my family, you know, or everybody's safe. 
when it gets down to that, that's what the rich young ruler was seeking, not his, his youth. And we worship youth today and beauty and all of that. It's not about youth. It's not about wealth. And it's not about power. It's about following Jesus and living as a kingdom activist to understand that it all belongs to him anyway, even us. How do I inherit eternal life? By accepting Jesus now. Your eternal life doesn't begin when you die. It begins when you're born again. When you follow Jesus. And when you live his teachings. And that's what the rich young ruler didn't understand. And that's why he went away discouraged and depressed. All he knew was the empire. So that's the invitation. Do you know Jesus? Have you entered the threshold of the kingdom of God by receiving that salvation and living that salvation in Him? That, you know, it's not just about where we go when we die, but your eternal life begins in the moment you receive Christ. Let's pray. I ask today, Father, that you move your spirit in this place. I pray, O oh God, that your word to the rich young ruler will become real to us. That we can learn, O oh God, that it's not about giving up anything. It's about receiving everything. The salvation of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a closing hymn. If there is a need that you have in your life, you just would like someone to pray with you, we're going to ask you, you know, just to come and take me by the hand and say, Brian, I, I just need you to pray for me today for this particular need. Whatever might be on your heart this morning, will you come as we stand together?